This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Friday, October 13th. I'm Gavin McGough. And I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, Prop HH endorsement stumps commissioners. Eyes to ears with Bella Eatman. Book chronicles a healing journey. And a mountain weather forecast. But first... San Miguel County Search and Rescue, Telluride Fire, and Sheriff deputies responded to an injured hiker outside Ofer on Thursday. The 31-year-old Telluride man told deputies he lost his footing on light snow covering the trail. He sustained a lower leg injury. Responders reached the man via UTV and brought him to an ambulance. He was transported to the Telluride Regional Medical Center for care. Many property owners in San Miguel County were shocked earlier this year when they opened their latest assessments and found their home values had jumped 40, 50, or even 75 percent over levels from only two years ago. The drastic increases in value are a product of Colorado's pandemic real estate boom, and they're being felt statewide. While an increase in value may bring financial benefits to some homeowners, it can also mean higher property taxes. The potential tax increases have caught the attention of the San Miguel Board of County Commissioners. And I know that in speaking with each of the commissioners individually, they're wishing to provide additional tax relief to uh, their residents, knowing that so many San Miguel County residents are on fixed incomes or Um, have owned their homes for a long time and may not be able to bear uh, the dramatic potential increases in uh, taxes. That's County Manager Mike Bordonia. Over the past couple weeks, the commissioners and county staff have been discussing Proposition HH, which is a statewide ballot measure appearing before Colorado voters this fall. HH would work like this. It cuts the property tax assessment rate in Colorado for a period of 10 years and limits increases in property tax collections. Over time, it would save property owners hundreds of millions of dollars. At the same time, however, the proposition would lower Tabor refunds over the same 10-year period. That money, which is usually returned to taxpayer pockets, would stay with the state, and the state would distribute the Tabor funds to schools, counties, and other entities in order to make up for the lost property tax revenue. So, as Commissioner Ann Brown explains it, if Proposition HH passes... People will have lower property taxes. They will have also have, with Proposition HH, they would also have lower Tabor refunds. Uh-huh. And that that is something that um, people within our state really count on um, as part of their financial you know, budgeting and so forth. Calculating exactly who will benefit if both Tabor refunds decline and property taxes are cut makes for tricky math. Among county governments, says Brown. The issue, the the grave concerns by those opposed to it are the fact that it tips the balance of power, if you will, in favor of the state by their retaining more of our Tabor refunds and then um, needing to backfill the counties for that. So rather than having direct control over its revenue, the county will depend on the state to send tax money its way. But in the end, weighing the pros and cons of Prop HH for San Miguel County voters and for county government brings no clear answers, says Brown. I feel a little weak because I think that our 
the public will be looking to us for guidance on, you know, what makes sense for San Miguel County. But at this point, I just I'm not certain that we fully know. As such, the commissioners declined to take a position on Prop HH. Voters will be faced with the question on the 2023 ballot and will have to consider the benefits of Tabor versus the benefits of a property tax cut in their own finances. Regardless of the outcome, the commissioners are continuing to look at ways to provide tax relief to county residents above and beyond the efforts laid out by Prop HH. Creepy Crawlies are about this month, and this week on Eyes to Ears, Telluride High School's Bella Eatman highlights artistic invertebrates. Have a listen. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another installment to the Eyes to Ears series. This is a program on Kolo where I, Bella Eatman, describe art pieces to you. This used to be focused primarily on paintings, but I have been encouraged to expand my horizons, and today I nurture that expansion by describing a necklace I have seen within the Bella Fine Goods Gallery. Seen just five cases into the store is a collection of amulets in the form of gem-bedazzled gold or silver-framed beetles. And I will tell you my view on my favorite of them all from within the far right of the case. This beetle, unlike most others, resembles a wide, rounded, rhombus-shaped exoskeleton of light gold. Down the center of its back peeks through the teardrop shape of what could be amber, thus followed by a string of small diamonds down the rest of the beetle's shell lining. Six tiny legs, like elongated pendant-shaped bits of metal, peek out from beneath the shell. As tiny and minuscule as they were, it brings a relief of completion. Lastly, we find the head to be covered entirely in small diamonds, save for the comparatively large emerald crest upon its forehead and small, angular emerald eyes. This is then crowned and chained by the beetle's antenna and thin, uneven, light gold chains. Visiting Bella Fine Goods was a very different experience in comparison to most other galleries. They displayed their goods as something so out of place high class to the point where it was understandable why I'd consider it to be more of a high quality store rather than a viewing experience of the arts. Yet of course, most other galleries in town do this as well. One must make a living, and art must often fight to sell well. This gallery was a gorgeous place to stop by either way. And that just about does it for this episode of Eyes to Ears. I am your host on Kodo, Bella Eatman, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.
Ridgeway resident Joy Sharp has engaged widely with different spiritual teachings and practices throughout her life. At the outset of the COVID pandemic, she was overtaken by chronic pain, spreading through her legs and hips. Her journey towards healing changed her life and brought new teachings and practices into view. It's now become the subject of a book which Sharp published this year, Unpredictable Grace, My Adventure Recovering from Chronic Pain Through Neuroscience and Quantum Mechanics. Sharp talked with KOTO News about her journey and her writing, and she begins by recalling the pain which came over her back in 2020. And I went through the usual routes of the doctor and the PT and eventually getting a a scan, an MRI, and it showed some abnormalities. And so I kept trying to treat it, the old way of strengthening the hip and getting the body work done and this and that. And as I kept focusing on it, it kept getting worse rather than better. And I watched my world get very small at that point because severe pain can make you afraid. And it was exhausting and it was terrifying because I didn't know what was causing it. I just noticed that it was getting way worse, way fast. The healing part of your journey began when you encountered the teachings of John Sarn. He coined something called TMS uh, back in the 80s. Talk about Sarn's teachings. Yeah, some people might have heard of this. It's called tension myositis syndrome. And it's much more common than we realize. And it's basically the pain has been caused, as all pain is caused, by the brain. And what starts to happen is the brain starts getting a message that like certain feelings are dangerous or it might be certain people are dangerous or certain situations are dangerous but it learns things. And if a situation continues, what the brain does is it turns on a danger signal and it doesn't turn it off again. And that is what causes chronic symptoms. So this journey uh, with healing began at the beginning of COVID. And here you've already released a book. Um, How did you come so quickly to writing? So it was about a year later I just decided that I I have to tell people about this. Um, and I wasn't working, right, because I couldn't work when I was in so much pain. And fortunately, I, my situation was in a place that I had this time, this block of time. And I just said, I have to start writing about this. And so my book is about my recovery process, but it's also about that um, that inspirational dimension that I discovered within myself. And if I can help inspire people in any kind of way, I feel like I'm I'm doing some good. So that's it in a nutshell. That's what made me just want to write a book. And it just sort of took over. I mean, I wrote it really fast. And, you know, and, and uh, yeah, I got it out there pretty quickly. Did you self-publish? Uh, and, and what was that like? You know, self-publishing isn't that difficult, I don't think. I think when, once you know what you want to do and and why you want to do it. It's almost like kind of you, you feel supported in that. And I, I'm going to write another book. I already have another one planned out. I'm not going to start it right away yet, but, you know, going forward, I'll have a lot more confidence. We live in a community and a region with a lot of healers, a lot of different forms of healing um, and people working through their health journeys 
uh, what is it like to be part of this community? You know, there's, there's different approaches for different times and for different people. You know, I, ha- I did the same thing. I went to a, to a lot of different healers to try to get the symptoms to calm down. But when they only got worse, you know, it was a big red flag that this isn't working, right? And, and so I, I just kind of want to be there for people when they've found themselves at that place where nothing is working. That was Ridgeway resident and mind-body coach Joy Sharp discussing her book, Unpredictable Grace, My Adventure Recovering from Chronic Pain Through Neuroscience and Quantum Mechanics. Access to the Telluride Ski Resort will close starting Monday, October 16th. The closure will include all activities, including hiking, biking, and skiing. Telski officials note they will be using the fall off-season to prepare for the winter. This year, that includes the development of a new Giuseppe's, snowmaking preparations, finalizing glading initiatives, avalanche safety training, and conclusion of mudslide remediation around Chair 7. Access to the mountain is scheduled to reopen on Thursday, November 23rd. The Grand Mesa, Uncompagre, and Gunnison National Forests are planning to burn slash piles over the next several months. Pile burns will likely begin in mid-October when there's enough snow or rain to prevent fire spread. The burns will continue as long as conditions allow. The GMUG notes slash piles are created to remove debris and vegetation in the aim of reducing larger wildfire risk. The piles are burned in areas where other means of disposal are not possible. GMUG officials add the forest thinning projects help improve forest health and wildlife habitat and reduce wildfire risk. Slash piles will only be burned under specific conditions and with the supervision of fire managers. The public should not call 911 or emergency services if smoke is visible in burn areas. The GMUG will post burn areas and possible dates on the GMUG Fire Info Facebook page. A jury found Aurora police officer Randy Rodima guilty of criminally negligent homicide and third-degree assault on Thursday in the 2019 death of Elijah McLean, a 23-year-old black man. Rodima could face a prison sentence of up to three years. Fellow police officer Jason Rosenblatt was found not guilty. McLean was stopped by police while walking home in 2019. Police officers put him in a chokehold and paramedics injected him with ketamine. He died in the hospital several days later. Governor Jared Polis reopened the case in 2020 in the wake of protests across the country following the death of George Floyd. The trial was the first in the case of McLean's death. A third police officer and two paramedics are still awaiting trial. In 2020, Colorado voters approved the reintroduction of wolves to the state by the end of this year. But wildlife officials have had a hard time finding wolves that were both available and would survive here. Until now. As Aspen Public Radio's Eleanor Bennett reports for Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Oregon has agreed to provide up to 10 gray wolves to Colorado. Colorado Parks and Wildlife announced the agreement with Oregon's Fish and Wildlife Department late last week. CBW plans to work with state biologists to capture and relocate the wolves to the western slope between December and March. 
Matt Yamashita is a CPW wildlife manager based in Glenwood Springs. He says they're hoping to release some of the wolves by the end of this year, but weather and other factors could slow the process down. We're going to begin some of our capture operations up there under the assumption in December, under the assumption that we will have some adequate weather conditions. You know, if if conditions are extremely hot, dry, it'll complicate our efforts to successfully capture those animals and bring them down to Colorado safely. Yamashita says cooler weather is better for the animal's health. He expects that the first batch of wolves will be released on state and private land, most likely in Eagle, Summit, and Grand counties. They're unlikely to release wolves in the Roaring Fork Valley because it's heavily populated and there's a lot of development, but that doesn't mean they won't end up here. Wolves are a species that like to travel. So where we release them, they're going to go where they want to go and they're going to kind of define um, their own boundaries and, and kind of create their own subset of suitable habitat. Yamashita says they're still working to identify exact release locations where there's minimal human activity and easy access to prey. In addition to Oregon, CPW is also looking at a few other places to get wolves in the region. The agency can release up to 15 wolves in its first year of reintroduction. Eleanor Bennett, Aspen Public Radio News. Earlier this month, Carbondale played host to the 2023 National Sheepdog Final at the Strang Ranch in Missouri Heights. The event featured the best herding dogs, all border collies, from around North America, working with their handlers to herd stubborn Colorado sheep. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Aspen Public Radio's Caroline Yanis has more. On a crisp fall morning at the Strang Ranch in Carbondale, some of the finest athletes in North America are competing to show they have what it takes to overcome the toughest challenges their sport has to offer. The challenge? Ornery range sheep from Colorado's high country and miles of field to run them on. The athletes, as you might have guessed, aren't people. They're border collies, bred for generations to herd livestock, mostly sheep and cattle. Their handlers use a series of whistled and verbal commands to tell the dogs where to go and what to do. But a lot of the sport starts with instinct, and the Border Collie's innate desire to work the sheep is on full display here. They know what to do. It's just building the communication system between the two of you and developing them and correcting the bad little bits, trimming them off, and saying, no, no, doggy, don't do that. But yeah, just go ahead and do what you naturally want to do, and um, we'll put the commands on it. That's Ellen Skillings from California. She's been in this sport, also called dog trialing, and working with animals for nearly 40 years. Skillings says the dogs competing at String Ranch this weekend are the best of the best, and represent a bond between the handler and the dog that can only be built with dedication and hard work. And this is a big course with pretty tough sheep, and so the dogs really has to have a lot of stamina to get through it. It requires quite a lot of dog. The course and tasks are meant to be transferable to actual farm and ranch work with livestock. For example, a good stock dog will need to be able to herd sheep over long distances, especially in the West, where ranges stretch miles and predators, such as wolves and coyotes, are abundant. Or if someone comes by the ranch to purchase a sheep, or a sheep is sick and needs doctoring, a dog needs to be able to help its handler separate it off from the rest of the herd. 
And, of course, a dog needs to be able to help get the sheep into a pen. These abilities are all tested throughout the trial course here at the Strang Ranch. Among the competitors here is Bridget Strang, whose family owns and runs the ranch, and her dog, Bill. The pair have competed in trials all over the country, but Bill's main job is helping out on the ranch. That's kind of how I train them. I give them, I teach them a few tools, and then I go out and I do a job. And um, through, the, through that series of chores and tasks is kind of how I train my dog. I think other people probably have, a more, have more method. <laughs> you might think that Bill would have a home field advantage, but he's only three years old and hasn't worked with these specific sheep before. For Strang, hosting the national finals is a special experience. You know, I, I live for the dog trialing. I would still have dogs and sheep and do the work if I didn't dog trial. But with every job I do, I sort of have my eye on the ball for how that might help me in the trial field. In the semifinals, Strang and Bill were able to corral all of their sheep into the pen, but had some missteps. I mishandled it. I misread that panel, so I missed that panel. And then I made a mistake in the shedding ring. In the end, their score didn't qualify the duo for the finals on Sunday, though Strang felt satisfied with the results. He's good. He's young. He's got a feature in front of him. First, it's his first national finals. First year in Open. The weekend's winners were Scott Glenn and four-year-old Pip from Alberta, Canada. The pair's final score was far and away the best of the competition. Even for a seasoned winner like Glenn, it's still breathtaking to watch the dogs work. It always stuck with me how neat it was the dog knew left and right. That always impressed me because we had cattle dogs, but I mean, it was sycamore come back, sycamore come back, hopefully. But just the great distance of them of them going, I think, is awesome. Glenn brought home tens of thousands of dollars from the prize purse, but the reward for Pip, Bill, and all the other dogs who had been sprinting for miles was to cool down by taking a plunge in big buckets of water. That's it for the national finals for this year, but a lot of these handlers and dogs will be back in Colorado next September for the Meeker Classic, a trial that will qualify dogs and handlers for the 2024 final. There will also be plenty of newcomers, like Ellen Skilling's pup Freyer, who's not yet one year old. And for all of Skilling's experience, she can't say what next season will bring. It's never the same. You're never done training and thinking about it. The more you do, the more questions you ask. You can never 100% predict what's going to happen. Every time you go out there, it's new. For Aspen Public Radio News, I'm Caroline Yanez. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for a partly cloudy night tonight with a low around 30 degrees, followed by a sunny day on Saturday with a high in the mid-50s. Saturday night, expect clear skies with a low around 35 degrees. Sunday should bring sunny skies again with a high near 60, followed by a clear night with a low near 40 degrees. This has been the news for Friday, October 13th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. 
Hi, Kodo friends. This is Tiffany Perry Marks, governing board member of the Progressive Women's Caucus, a local all-volunteer nonprofit that seeks to elevate women and shape our community through leadership and participation. Please join the PWC for a Town of Telluride local election forum on Tuesday, October 17th from 5.15 to 7 p.m. at Rebecca Hall with a live broadcast over Kodo. The forum will feature the nine candidates running in the Telluride Town Council and mayoral races, as well as brief presentations on the local ballot measures. Simultaneous Spanish interpretation and snacks will be provided. Childcare is also available at the Wilkinson Public Library during the event, which is open to everyone. So bring a friend and plan to join us on Tuesday, October 17th at Rebecca Hall, starting at 5.15 p.m. Thanks, Kodo. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You're also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Kodo. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.